Section One of the Forsaken Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas. The Forsaken Inn by Anna Catherine Green. Chapter One: The Oak Parlor. I was riding between Albany and Poughkeepsie. It was raining furiously, and my horse, already weary with long travel, gave unmistakable signs of discouragement. I was, therefore, greatly relieved when, in the most desolate part of the road, I espied, rising before me, the dim outlines of a house, and was correspondingly disappointed when, upon riding forward, I perceived that it was but a deserted ruin. I was approaching, whose fallen chimney and broken windows betrayed a dilapidation so great that I could scarcely hope to find so much as a temporary shelter therein. Nevertheless, I was so tired of the biting storm that I involuntarily stopped before the decayed and forbidding structure, and was, in truth, withdrawing my foot from the stirrup when I heard an unexpected exclamation behind me, and turning, saw a chaise from the open front of which leaned a gentleman of most attractive appearance. "'What are you going to do?' he asked. "'Hide my head from the storm,' was my hurried rejoinder. "'I am tired, and so is my horse, and the town, according to all appearances, must be at least two miles distant. "'No matter if it is three miles, you must not take shelter in that charnel house,' he muttered, and moved along in his seat, as if to show me there was room beside him. "'Why?' I exclaimed, struck with sudden curiosity. "'Is this one of the haunted houses we hear of? "'If so, I shall certainly enter "'and be much obliged to the storm "'for driving me into so interesting a spot.' "'I thought he looked embarrassed. "'At all events, I am sure he hesitated for a moment "'whether or not to ride on and leave me to my fate. "'But his better impulses seemed to prevail, for he suddenly cried, "'Get in with me and leave mysteries alone. "'If you want to come back here after you have learned the history of that house, "'you can do so, but first ride on to town and have a good meal. "'Your horse will follow easily enough after he is rid of your weight.' "'It was too tempting an offer to be refused, "'though thankfully accepting his kindness, "'I alighted from my horse, and after tying him to the back of the chaise, "'got in, with this genial stranger. As I did so, I caught another view of the ruin I had been so near entering. Good gracious, I exclaimed, pointing to the structure that, with its projecting upper story and ghastly apertures, presented a most suggestive appearance, if it does not look like a skull. My companion shrugged his shoulders, but he did not reply. The comparison was evidently not a new one to him. That evening, in a comfortable inn parlor, I read the following manuscript. It was placed in my hands by this kindly stranger, who in so doing explained that it had been written by the last occupant of the old inn I was so nearly on the point of investigating. She had been its former landlady, and had clung to the ancient house long after decay had settled upon its doorstep, and desolation breathed from its gaping windows. She died in its north room, and from under her pillow the discolored leaves were taken. 
the words of which I now place before you. January 27, 1775 I do not understand myself. I do not understand my doubts, nor can I analyze my fears. When I saw the carriage drive off, followed by the wagon, with its inexplicable big box, I thought I should certainly regain my former serenity. But I am more uneasy than ever. I cannot rest and keep going over and over in my mind the few words that passed between us in their short stay under my roof. It is her face that haunts me. It must be that, for it had a strange look of trouble in it as well as sickness. But neither can I forget his, so fair, so merry, and yet so unpleasant, especially when he glanced at her and, as I could not help but think before they went away, when he glanced at me. I do not like him, and the chills creep over me whenever I remember his laugh, which was much too frequent to be decent, considering how poorly his young wife looked. They are gone, and their belongings with them, but I am as much afraid as if they were still here. Why? That is what I cannot tell. I sit in the room where they slept and feel as strange and terrified as if I had encountered a ghost there. I dread to stay and dread to move and write because I must relieve myself in some way, that is, if I am to have any sleep tonight. Am I ill, or was there something unexplained and mysterious in their actions? Let me go over the past and see. They came last evening about twilight. I was in the front of the house, and seeing such a good-looking couple in the carriage, and such a pile of baggage with them, that they had to have an extra wagon to carry it, I ran out in all haste to welcome them. She had a veil drawn over her face, and it was so thick that I could not see her features. But her figure was slight and graceful, and I took a fancy to her at once. Perhaps because she held her arms out when she saw me, as if she thought she beheld in me a friend. He did not please me so well, though there is no gain saying that he is handsome enough and speaks when he wishes to, with a great deal of courtesy. But I thought he ought to give his attention to his young and ailing wife, instead of being so concerned about his baggage. Had that big box of his contained gold, he could not have looked at it more lovingly or been more anxious about its handling. He said it held books, but pshaw! What is there in books that a man should love them better than his wife, and watch over their welfare with the utmost concern, while allowing a stranger to help her out of the carriage and up the inn steps. But I will not dwell any longer upon this. Men are strange beings, and must not be judged by rules that apply to women. Let me see if I can remember when it was that I first saw her face. Ah, yes, it was in the parlor. She had taken a seat there while her husband looked through the house and decided which room to take. There were four empty, and two of them were the choicest and airiest in the inn but he passed by these and insisted upon taking one that was stuffy with disuse, because it was on the ground floor, and so convenient for us to bring his great box into. His great box. I was so provoked at this everlasting concern about his great box that I ran to the parlor, intending to ask the lady herself to interfere. But when I got to the threshold I paused and did not speak, for the lady or Mrs. Urquhart, as I presently found she called herself, 
had risen from her seat and was looking in the glass with an expression so sad and searching that I forgot my errand and only thought of comforting her. But the moment she heard my step, she drew down the veil, which she had tossed back, and coming quickly toward me, asked if her husband had chosen a room. I answered in the affirmative, and began to complain that it was not a very cheerful one, but she paid small attention to my words, and presently I found myself following her to the apartment designated. She entered, making a picture, as she crossed the threshold, which I shall not readily forget. For in her short, quick walk down the hall, she had torn the bonnet from her head, and though she was not a strictly beautiful woman, she was sufficiently interesting to make her every movement attractive. But that is not all. For some reason, the moment possessed an importance for her which I could not measure. I saw it in her posture, in the pallor of her cheeks, and the uprightness of her carriage. That sudden halt she made at the threshold, the half-startled exclamation she gave, as her eyes fell on the interior, all showed that she was laboring under some secret agitation. But what was the cause of that agitation, I have not been able to determine. She went in, but as she did so, I heard her murmur, Oak walls, ah, my soul, it has come soon. Not a very intelligible exclamation, you will allow, but as intelligible as her whole conduct. For in another moment, every sign of emotion had left her, and she stood quite calm and cold in the center of the room. But her pallor remained, and I could not make sure whether this betokened weary resignation or some secret but half-recognized fear. Had I looked at him instead of her, I might have understood the situation better. But though I dimly perceived this form, drawn up in the empty space at the left of the door, it was not until she had passed him and flung herself into a chair that I thought to look in his direction. Then it was too late, for he had turned his face aside and was gazing, with rather an obtrusive curiosity, at the old-fashioned room, murmuring as he did so, some such commonplaces to his wife as, I hope you are not fatigued, my dear. Fine old house, this. Quite English in style, eh? To all of which she answered with a nod or word, till suddenly, without look or warning, she slipped from her chair and lay perfectly insensible upon the dark boards of the worm-eaten floor. I uttered an exclamation, and so did he, but it was my arms that lifted her and laid her on the bed. He stood as if frozen to his place for a moment, then he mechanically lifted his foot and set it with an air of proprietorship on the box before which he had been standing. Strange and inexplicable conduct, thought I, and looked the indignation I could not but feel. Instantly he left his position and hastened to my side, offering his assistance and advice with that heartless officiousness which is so unbearable when life and death are at stake. I accepted as little of his help as was possible, and when, after persistent effort on my part, I saw her lids fluttering and her breast heaving, I turned to him with as inoffensive air as my mingled dislike and distrust would admit, and asked how long they had been married. He flushed violently, and with a sudden rage that at once robbed him of that gentlemanly appearance which, in him, 
was but the veneer to a coarse and brutal nature, he exclaimed, You? And by what right do you ask that? Before I could reply, he recovered himself and was all false polish again, bowing with exaggerated politeness as he exclaimed, Excuse me, I have had much to disturb me lately. My wife's health has been very feeble for months, and I am worn out with anxiety and watching. We are now on our way to a warmer climate, where I hope she will be quite restored. And he smiled a very strange and peculiar smile that went out like a sudden extinguished candle as he perceived her eyes suddenly open and her gaze passed reluctantly around the room, as if forced to a curiosity against which she secretly rebelled. I think Mrs. Urquhart will do very well now, was his hurried remark at this sight. He evidently wished to be rid of me, and though I hated to leave her, I really found nothing to say in contradiction to his statement, for she certainly looked completely restored. I therefore turned away with a heavy heart toward the door, when the young wife, suddenly throwing out her arms, exclaimed, Do not leave me in this horrible room alone. I am afraid of it, actually afraid. Couldn't you have found some spot in the house less gloomy, Edwin? I came back. There are plenty of rooms, I began, but he interrupted me without any ceremony. I chose this room, Honora, for its convenience. There is nothing horrible about it, and when the lamps are lit, you will find it quite pleasant. Do not be foolish. We sleep here or nowhere, for I cannot consent to go upstairs. She answered nothing, but I saw her eyes go traveling once again around the walls, followed in a furtive way by his whereupon I looked about me, too, and tried to get a stranger's impression of the place. I was astonished at its effect upon my imagination. Though I had been in and out of the room fifty times before, I had never noticed till now the extreme dismalness and desolation of its appearance. Once used as an auxiliary parlor, it had that air of uninhabitableness which clings to such rooms together with a certain something else, equally unpleasant, to which at that moment I could give no name, and for which I could neither find then nor now any sufficient reason. It was paneled with oak far above our heads, and as the walls above had become gray with smoke, there was absolutely no color in the room, not even in the hangings, on the gaunt four-poster that loomed dreary and repelling from one end of the room for here, as elsewhere, time had been at work, and tints that were once bright enough had gradually been subdued by dust and smoke into one uniform dimness. The floor was black, the fireplace empty, the walls without a picture, and yet it was neither from this grayness nor from this bareness that one recoiled. It was from something else, something that went deeper than the lack of charm or color, something that clung to the walls like a contagion, and caught at the heartstrings, where they are weakest, smothering hope and awaking horror, till in each faded chair a ghost seems sitting, gazing at you with immovable eyes that could tell tales but would not. There was but one window in the room, and that looked toward the west. But the light that should have entered there was frightened also, and halted on the ledge without balked by the thick curtains that heavily enshrouded it. 
a haunted chamber, or so it appeared at that moment, to my somewhat excited fancy, and for the first time in my life here I felt a dread of my own house, and experienced the uncanny sensation of someone walking over my grave. But I soon recovered myself. Nothing of a disagreeable nature had ever happened in this room, nor had we had any special reason for shutting it up, except that it was in an out-of-the-way place, and not usually considered convenient, notwithstanding Mr. Orquat's opinion to the contrary. Never mind, said I, with a last effort to soothe the agitated woman. We will let in a little light and dissipate some of these shadows. And I attempted to throw back the curtains of the window, but they fell again immediately, and I experienced a sensation as of something ghostly passing between us and the light. Provoked at my own weakness, I tore the curtains down and flung them into a corner. A straggling beam of sunset color came in, but it looked out of place and forlorn upon that black floor, like a stranger who meets with no welcome. The poor young wife seemed to hail it, however, for she moved instantly to where it lay and stood as if she longed for its warmth and comfort. I immediately glanced at the fireplace. I will soon have a rousing fire for you, I declared. These old fireplaces hold a large pile of wood. I thought, but I must be mistaken, that he made a gesture as if about to protest, but if so, reason must have soon come to his aid, for he said nothing, though he looked uneasy as I moved the andirons forward and made some other trivial arrangements for the fire which I had promised them. He thinks I am never going, I muttered to myself, and took pleasure in lingering, for anxious as I was to have the room heated up for her comfort, I knew that every moment I stayed there would be one less for her to spend with her surly husband alone. At last I had no further excuse for remaining, and so with a final remark that if the fire failed to give them cheer we had a sitting-room into which they could come, I went out. But I knew, even while saying it, that he would not grant her the opportunity of enjoying the sitting-room's coziness, that he would not let her out of his sight if he did out of the room, and that for her to remain in his presence was to be in darkness, solitude, and gloom, no matter what walls surrounded her or in what light she stood. My impressions were not far wrong. Mr. and Mrs. Urquhart came to supper, but that was all. Before the others had finished their roast, they had eaten their pudding and gone, and though he had talked and laughed and shown his white teeth, the impression left behind them was a depressing one, which even Hetty felt, and she has anything but a sensitive nature. I went to the room once again in the evening. I found them both seated, but in opposite parts of the room, he by his great box, and she in an easy chair, which I had caused to be brought down from my own room for her especial use. I did not look at him, but I did at her, and was astonished to see first how dignified she was, and next how pretty. Had she been happy and at her ease, I should probably have been afraid of her, for the firelight, which now shone on her wan young cheek, brought out evidences of character and culture in her expression, which proved her to be, by birth and training, of a position superior to what one would be led to expect 
from her husband's aspect and manner. But she was not happy nor at her ease, and wore, instead of that quiet and commanding look of the great lady, such an expression of secret dread that I almost forgot my position of landlady, and should certainly, if he had not been there, falling at her side and taking her poor forsaken head upon my breast. But that silent, immovable form, sitting statue-like beside his big box, smiling, for aught I knew, but if so, breathing out a chill, that forbade all exhibition of natural feeling, held me in check. As it held her, so that I merely inquired whether there was anything I could do for her, and when she shook her head, starting a tear down her cheek as she did so, I dared do nothing more than give her one look of sympathetic understanding and start for the door. A command from him stopped me. My wife will need a slight supper before she goes to bed, said he. Will you be good enough to see that one is brought? She roused herself up with a quite startled look of wonder. Why, Edwin, she began, I never have been in the habit. But he hushed her at once. I know what is best for you, said he. A small plate of luncheon, Mrs. Truax, and let it be nice and inviting. I curtsied, gave her another glance, and went out. Her countenance had not lost its look of wonder. Was he going to be considerate after all? The lunch was prepared and taken to her. Not long after this, the inn quieted down, and such guests as were in the house prepared for rest. Midnight came. All was dark in the room and hall. I was sure of this, for I went through the whole building myself, contrary to my usual habit, which was to leave this task to my man of all work, Burritt. All was dark, all was quiet, and I was just dropping off to sleep when there shot up suddenly from below a shriek which was quickly smothered, but not so quickly that I did not recognize in it that tone which is only given by hideous distress or mortal fear. It is Mrs. Urquhart, I cried in terror to myself, and plunging into my clothes, I hurried downstairs. End of chapter 1